The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. And our study is the last of the Ten Commandments. And in some ways, I I believe that this is the hardest of the ten. And perhaps uh, it is the hardest on the flesh because this is the commandment that exposes who we are on the inside in the part that no one can see. Now, if you found the text, God's tenth word for Israel is this command in verse number 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The tenth commandment is, thou shalt not covet. And covetousness in the context of this command is an evil desire. In other places of scripture, this word is translated as lust or as delight. You shall not delight in those things that belong to your neighbor. And this is a comprehensive command, because after giving a list of individual items that it says you should not desire, and that is your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his servants, and his livestock, this commandment concludes with anything that is your neighbor's. There are some who describe covetousness as the most dangerous of all sins because of its tendency to leave us self-deceived. Covetousness is very often hard to discern. If you steal something, you can't convince yourself that you haven't stolen it. If you uh, tell a lie, you can't talk yourself into believing that you told the truth. Maybe you do, because some people might try that. But covetousness is different, because there isn't a physical action that's involved in it. It often results in outward actions, and it becomes things like adultery and, and lying and murder. But at first, this is a sin that begins in the mind, And you may think that there is no sin because you haven't yet committed the act. Now, there's an interesting verse in Hebrews that says, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, I'll just tell you that that verse is mostly about the ability to tell the difference between good doctrine and bad doctrine, A person who is grounded in the faith is better able to tell if someone is not telling the truth when they stand in a pulpit, as I am today. They hear something that doesn't sound quite right and doesn't match the Word of God. But there's also a sense in this passage that there are some people that are better at discovering moral questions, better at diagnosing when there is a moral adversity that affects them, and better to find out when their minds are drifting off and their desires are dangerously close to being acted out. Covetousness is dangerous because we might not notice it quickly enough, we might not notice the the evil thought quickly enough, and then the inward develops outwardly. Now, because of our sin nature, then, we have to be vigilant about it. We have to guard every thought to keep it from crossing over that line into sin. So covetousness is the sin of dwelling on thoughts and desiring those things that we don't have until they consume us. Now, in a few minutes, I want to talk to you 
about how to control those thoughts, but the first thing that we need to do is just back up a little bit and review what we talked about in the first part of this sermon, and that was the cause of covetousness. Where does it come from? And we learned that the cause of covetousness is the heart. If I were to ask you to remember the last time that you heard a sermon about covetousness, most of you would say, last week. It was the sermon that I preached here last week. And um, besides that, you probably can't remember a time when a preacher preached on, on this subject. And you don't hear about this much anymore because the world and religion are okay with this sin. They even condone the sin, and many of them don't even recognize it as a problem. And we don't hear very much about it because this is a sin that exposes our heart. It discovers the condition of the heart. And the plain facts are we just don't want to be confronted with the fact that our heart condition is much worse than we imagine. Jesus said the heart is evil. Jeremiah said it is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. And we don't really know how bad the heart is and what kind of things that we're capable of. I read an article a few days ago describing this. There was a, a young lady who went to church, and she said that she really, really liked it at first because in the pastor's sermon, he kept telling her how awesome she was. And he just kept telling her how special and how unique that she was. And she said, oh, I really felt good. I really felt good about myself, the best that I'd felt for a long time because he was really just building me up. But then he tacked on something about this guy named Jesus. And he said that she needed to add Jesus to her awesome life, and he could help her. And she didn't really understand that, because if her life was so awesome, why did she need him? What benefit could he be to her? So she said she wouldn't go back, because that made her feel bad. And what that preacher did was to give her a mixed message. He told her that she was good and awesome, but she just lacked one little thing. She needed Jesus. Now, when I preach on covetousness, I can't explain it by telling you how good you are. I can't tell you about covetousness by telling you how awesome you are. I have to tell you what the Bible says, and that is your heart is evil, that your, hearts are, your, your thoughts are vile. And so I have to tell you about desires that you shouldn't have. And I have to tell you that about discontentment, that it's not right for you to desire what others have. But both in religion and in the world, discontentment is okay. The preacher says God wants you to have more than what you have. God wants you to be wealthy, he wants you to be healthy, and there's just nothing wrong with dreaming about it and making that the focus of your life. Osteen says that God wants you to live your best life, including getting the best parking spot at the mall. And it doesn't matter if an 87-year-old grandmother has to walk a mile and a half to get into the store. That's okay, because it's not about her. It's about you. It's about God's favor on you. You turn on the television, the world sells discontent. They say, you need all this stuff. You need everything we have to sell. Advertisers tell you that greed is good. We need more. And we want to sell you things until you go bankrupt trying to keep up with your neighbors. When the world and the church keep telling us that greed is good, then it becomes very hard to control our passion for more. 
So it's not likely you're going to hear a sermon on covetousness because most of what you hear in pulpits today is, is that that's the foundation of their doctrine. You need more. God wants to give you more. You've got to have this. And so you're not going to hear too many sermons about the evil condition of your heart. But that's where sin originates. Jesus said, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Campbell Morgan wrote, Here lies the most terrible indictment of covetousness. It is the fever that makes the eye glisten with a false luster, the cheek flush with deceitful color, the muscles twitch with restless desire, it is the service whose final wages is death. Whenever man desires anything small or great, outside the possibility of righteousness, he is in that measure in the grasp of a fever which must destroy him unless it is quenched. And that fairly describes the meaning of covetousness and why it's dangerous. It's the desire of anything that is outside the possibility of righteousness, and that is the fever that will destroy you. So this commandment is the tenth. It is the summation of all of the rest. This is the one that's the root of all other sins. And because of that, the Bible continually warns against it, which makes it very, very strange that preachers won't preach about it. It makes it very strange. If this is the root of all sin, why isn't there more said about covetousness? Warnings about it are found throughout the New Testament. Jesus said, take heed, beware of covetousness. In the Ephesian letter, Paul said that a covetous man has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. John wrote that the lust of this world passes away, and lust is from the same word that's translated as covet. Hebrews says, to let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. We find it in the Psalms, it's in the Proverbs, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Habakkuk, in Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, Colossians. How can a preacher ignore this subject? So the sin is very serious. It's damning. It takes away life in the kingdom of God and it condemns the soul to hell. So rather than embrace this word as false religions and others do, we need to determine how can we identify covetousness and how do we get rid of it. Now that brings us to the cure. What is the cure for covetousness? And the cure for it is holiness. The cure for covetousness is holiness. Several years ago, my wife began to feel ill. Her sicknesses became more frequent. Her energy was low and Every day she felt bad and unable to go through her daily routines. And so she went to the doctor many, many times, and the doctors did so much blood work and did it so frequently that I thought the doctor must be a vampire or something. But none of the tests that she, she did showed that there was anything wrong. Time after time, the doctor said, well, your blood work is fine, and they couldn't find anything wrong. But then she began to retain a lot of fluid. She began to swell in her abdomen. Finally, the doctor said, well, we've got to do something different. Uh, the problem that was on the inside began to show on the outside. And so he decided to do a paracentesis to see what the fluid was. 
And they discovered that this fluid was, was bathing her internal organs, literally just floating her organs up. And they drew off more than a gallon of fluid from her. And that was just a horrible experience because the doctor knew uh, what he was looking at before he tested it, and he was sure that he would find cancer cells in that fluid. But he didn't tell us that before the test, and so we did the thing that amateurs shouldn't do. We got on the Internet, and we started looking at causes. And the top search result was cancer. The doctor expected this is what he would find. And those two days that we were waiting for the results of it were the two most miserable days of our lives. But those tests came back and said there was no cancer. But there was extensive damage to her liver. And it was so severe that she was past the point that the liver could heal itself. And the fluid was the sign. And if that sign had not shown up, she would have died because the blood work didn't show it. The only thing that would at this point was an autopsy. And so the failure of the blood test to detect her problem reminds us of the difficulty of discovering covetousness. The blood test was not the right test. It took something else. So to find out if you're covetous, you, you must take the right test. When the world keeps telling you there's nothing wrong with you, you're just like everybody else, you're like millions of other people, they don't have the right test. And so you've got to go to the right doctor and you've got to let him diagnose the problem and tell you what to do about it. The cause of covetousness is the heart and the cure for it is holiness. And that holiness does not come because of what you do. This holiness comes because of what Christ did for you. That this work is not yours to do. It's not yours to change your sinful heart. But as surely as the doctor remits the cure and fixes the heart, you can't walk off and let things that ruined your life still be a part of your life. And this is where the commandments come in and are used in our treatment. That God expects you to obey them to maintain your good spiritual health. So first, you have to identify what you need to get rid of. Now, my wife's struggle against her liver disease is... A, is a routine to get rid of toxins in her body that the liver can't process. When you take a pill, or I take a pill, uh, the results of that pill, the, the effects of that wear off in about a day or so. But with her, it doesn't work that way. A pill that you routinely take, if she takes it more than once, twice, three times, it begins to build up in her system and actually begins to poison her. And so she can't take, can't take the same things that, that we take and... And uh, when she has pain and so forth, she just, she just can't take those things because of that buildup of the toxin. And so to get rid of covetousness, what you need to do is to identify the toxins that a holy life cannot consist with. Holiness and sinful desires cannot coexist. Oh, I love Thomas Watson's exposition of the Ten Commandments. And in my studies of, of the commandments, I, I rarely find a commentator who doesn't sometime or another sound like an echo chamber of Thomas Watson and his classic work on the Ten Commandments. They couldn't do better than what Watson said. I don't think I can either. So let me just remind you just a few things of what Thomas Watson said three or 400 years ago about covetousness. And so we're going to look at warning signs of covetousness. How do you know that it's there? 
Well, first of all, the first warning sign is that you are preoccupied with the world. Now, let me identify the audience for this message. This is primarily for Christians. This whole series on the Ten Commandments has been mostly for Christians because it's useless to tell an unbeliever not to be preoccupied with the world. Their life is the world. It's nothing but the world. And that's the way you were before your salvation. But you chose, or you did choose, nothing but the world, and that's the reason that you needed the Holy Spirit to, to open up your heart and show you that you had a problem. The righteousness that we need comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and obeying the commandments is the outworking of that. That's the evidence that your heart has changed. A heart that's been enabled to the holiness of God is the one that follows the commandments. So the Christian covets when he thinks too much about the world and not the things of God. So if you go every day, getting up and going to work and doing your thing, that there's no thought about picking up the Bible, there's no interest in prayer, there's no thought or any appreciation and application of what you've heard in a Sunday morning sermon, then you can be sure that you have a problem with covetousness. You can't be indifferent about this. You can't have a blank mind towards God because something is going to fill up that space where God should be. And anything that does not tend towards righteousness is covetousness. That's what Campbell Morgan said. All these things are covetousness. You are consumed with self and the world, and selfishness is covetousness. Now, the preoccupation with the world may be worse than you think, because it could be an indication that you're not a Christian. Though you carry the title with you, and you claim that you are, what did I say? Covetousness has a tendency to cause us to be self deceived. That's a characteristic of it. It's self-deceiving. So there are many in Christian churches that claim Christ, but they don't know anything about a changed heart. And Paul noticed this as a problem in the Philippian church. He says in Philippians chapter 3, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which also so walk as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often. Now he's talking about church people. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. You see it? Whose God is their belly, that is their desires, they mind earthly things. Their God is their selfish desires, that's covetousness. Now the ones again that Paul warns about here are false professors. These aren't true believers in Jesus Christ. And it's that last phrase that really concerns us, who mind earthly things. So they are preoccupied with the world, which is an indication that they aren't Christians. Now, if that describes you, and if Sunday is the only day that you think about God, then you're like these false professors that Paul describes. They had a semblance of Christianity, but the way that they lived their lives shows they were consumed with this disease of covetousness. It is impossible to have the holiness of Christ and the cancer of covetousness. Now, a second way that you can tell if you're covetous is you try harder for earthly gain than you do for heavenly glory. And that's actually the, 
the companion of preoccupation with the world, that you'll go to any lengths to be successful, to make more money and surround yourself with nicer things, but you put little to no effort in the eternal treasures of heaven. And so when the church calls and needs something, you're too busy. You don't want anything to do with it. There's time for vacation. There's time for career. There's plenty of time to get ahead. But there is no time for the Lord's work. There was an interesting byline that I read a few weeks ago in an article. The title of this article was The Other Woman. Now I want you to listen to this interesting thought. Who is the other woman in this illicit relationship? This is what the article said. Sometimes the other woman is not a woman at all. I don't believe I've ever read an entire chapter or listened to an entire session by a Christian on strategies for avoiding an affair with work. Why is that? Why, for people who believe that husbands ought to sacrifice themselves for the wives, as Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for his bride, is the threat of an all-consuming careerism not taken more seriously. Now, you see this? The other woman who takes away the attraction for his wife may not be a woman after all. The woman is his career, and she gets no time because the husband is consumed with his career. Now, the context of what we're talking about, the other woman or the other thing that draws our attention away from Christ may be your job. The, the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 had this problem. They left their first love. No doubt they were busier with earthly gain than they were with heavenly glory. And so many things that they did in the church were for their selfish fulfillment rather than a desire to glorify Christ. And if that's your problem... You have the symptoms of covetousness. In fact, you're right there. The disease is there. One of the saddest chapters in the Bible, and yet glorious at the same time, is 2 Timothy chapter 4. That chapter is Paul's swan song. We talked about martyrs a moment ago. That chapter was written just before Paul was about to be martyred. And he said, I fought a good fight. I, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. He knew where he was going when he died. And he said, there's a crown of righteousness that's laid up for me in my heavenly home. And he wasn't sorry that he was going to die to go home to be with the Lord. But he did say something that was sorrowful. And we find it in the first verse, or first part of verse number 10, where he said, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now in two other places, in Colossians and Philemon, Paul mentioned Demas is one of his co-laborers. At one time, he must have been a very faithfully dedicated companion, willing to go through the same, the same hardships for Christ as Paul did. But we look at that and we see he left. And why did he leave? Because he loved the world. He was covetous. And when covetousness breeds beneath the surface, it eats away at faithfulness. And the same thing will happen to you if what you think if you think that what you gain here is more important than heaven. Does the church need your help? Does a pastor need someone to take on a job? Does he need somebody to pray? Maybe he just needs somebody to sit in the pew that he can count on seeing week after week, seeing their face week after week, then wondering, where are they? Maybe that's just what the pastor needs, that encouragement. Are there people that will never know about Christ because 
They never concerned you? Is there too much thinking about the present world rather than the glories of heaven? That's covetousness, and that's what blossoms into sin that will destroy you within and also your testimony without. And so you are in danger of being a Demas if the gains of the world are more to you than the glories of the cross. Now let me give you only one more, because I want to save some time for the cure. One more that you can tell your covetousness. The means that you use justifies the end you receive. That is, when covetousness is full on in your heart, the deals that you make are often shady. Now, I hate to return to this, but in the message on stealing a few weeks ago, I I talked about dishonest practices and trying to avoid paying taxes. Why do people want to skip paying taxes? I think all of us do, but but why would we try to cheat on taxes? Well, the, the answer to it is very simple. It's more for me. It's less for them and more for me. So it's okay for public works to suffer because there's more for me. So many people get involved in these shady practices of taking money under the table rather than paying taxes. And and those kinds of things are just really low-level priorities for an IRS that's already overburdened with uh, all the problems and so forth. So people who do this are unlikely to be discovered. The likelihood that you're going to be caught is slim to none. And sad to say, there are many businessmen in the church that will often run their businesses that way. Shady deals are okay because everybody does it. And if everybody doesn't do it, there are enough, a significant number that do it, that, well, it's okay. When I was in business years ago, I was always very uneasy about these kinds of things. Um, I made sure that cash that I received went into the bank, so there'd be a record of that, that it was income, But I have a list in my head of church members down through the years that did work for me at various times. And they would always ask me, will you pay me in cash? And, of course, it's up to them to report that income. But I strongly suspect that most of the time there's no public record of it. So if you have a problem with these kinds of practices, the root cause really is just covetousness. That's that's what Scripture says. Dishonesty grows out of that, that is a root sin, just like it's a root for many others. Now, the benefit that you receive from a shady deal means it's just okay because that's the means that you use to get there. That's okay if it helps you. Now, let's take the reminder of the time, though, to discuss the cure for this problem that the symptoms expose. How are we going to get rid of covetousness? So our next, next thing is the steps to squash covetousness. How do we get rid of it? Now, I want to give you three steps that will help you to end covetousness. The first one strikes hard at the root. This foul plant of covetousness grows because it lacks a sure pesticide to be applied to kill it. In fact, this first step is the key to our whole religion. Number one, faith in God's provision. How do you cure covetousness? Have faith in what God provides. Faith is the instrument of Christianity that puts God's help into action. A Tenth Commandment says you're not to covet anything that is your neighbor's, and the reason that you don't is because God will amply supply what you need. And you may not believe that because you often confuse what you want with what you need. And it's your wants that feeds covetousness, and, and that grows because faith that God will provide what you need is lacking. I don't like to preach on 
money every Sunday, and you know I'm not a preacher who talks very much about money, but sometimes this becomes unavoidable. When we're talking about a sin of covetousness, it leads us right there when the Bible says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is money. And there are many of us that tried to do what the Lord says we cannot do. The love of money causes people to keep tithes and offerings in their pocket because they don't believe that God will resupply. So they're afraid that they're going to lose in their transactions with God. I like this thought. Faith not only purifies the heart, but satisfies it. It makes God our portion, and in Him we have enough. That's Thomas Watson. Now savor that thought for a minute. In God we have enough. Do you believe that's true? In God we have enough. If God is enough, isn't that a cure for anxiety? If God is enough, is it a cure to keep you from looking over the fence at what your neighbor has and then looking back at what you have and being dissatisfied with what you have? Two or three months ago, my wife's brother, former brother-in-law died. When we were young, we were, we were very good friends. But he fell into sin. He left the church. And after he did, he, he became quite successful. And, and I thought, you know, there's a guy that's never going to amount to anything. But he was out of church. I was in church. I was trying to serve the Lord. He didn't. But it seemed that he was always doing better than me. So I'd hear about his vacations. I'd hear about all the stuff that he could do. And although I was doing quite well, honestly, he was doing better. And it was very easy to become envious of him. And, and I learned then I had better not dwell on that. And what I did was to fear for his salvation, not covet what he had. Now, after going for 30, 40, 30 to 40 years where he gave no sign that his profession in Christ was real, and he claimed to be a, a saved man, and he was a part of the church. But 30 or 40 years when I had not really much contact with him, just hearing things about him, I read his obituary in the paper. And there was no mention of God. There was no mention of a church. No mention of any faith in God. But I did see that his friends were very careful to note that he loved to gamble in Vegas. I was sad for him because I was reassured at that point, I have God. That's far more than enough. If I die without him, as I think this man did, it is complete loss. When I hear about Christians who barely can get by, who are struggling every day just to keep their, their nose above the rising water to get a breath, and when I hear Christians like that say, God is good, then I know they found the cure for covetousness. Now, too many times, these are the things that we hear. If God is good, why is there disease? If God is good, why is there cancer? If God is good, why are there child molesters? If God is good, why is there poverty and hunger? And you don't hear much of this. Why did God save me? Why would God reach down and save my unworthy soul when every second of every day I don't do anything but break His commandments? Why would God provide for me? Why would He give me anything at all? The other things we just talked about, the disease, the child molesters, the poverty and hunger, hunger, that doesn't exist because of God. That exists because of man. That's because of what we did. Faith is the cure to this. Do you trust God? 
That stops the insidious growth of covetousness. You'll be satisfied with God if you have faith in him. God is our portion, and with God we have enough. Now the second way that you're going to cure covetousness is self-examination. Self-examination is a cure. You watch in your life for sins that keep cropping up over and over again. Those are signs of dissatisfaction with God. Now, here's the thing. I can't help you with a list of things that you're supposed to do if you are not proactive to examine your life to see if your wants for you are the same as God's. What does God want for you? So you need to take your Bible, and you've got to stick your nose in the Bible and find out what God says about your sin. And I'm not talking about sins in general. I'm not talking about what everybody else is doing. I'm talking about examination of your sins, to look into the Bible and see your sins, and then start working on those, not somebody else's. So let me give you, as your homework, a first assignment, and I'm not going to read this for you. Just write it down, Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Write it down, you can read it later, and I'm sure that you're going to find something in there about covetousness and about all other issues or many others that are connected with it. And there will be something in that list or multiple things in that list that you may find are your sins. So if you leave today and you say, well, you know, that pastor didn't give me enough to identify and root out covetousness, then all I can tell you is I just prescribed the medicine. I can't force you to take it. It's your responsibility to examine your life. Remember this, covetousness is a self-deceiving sin. I can't find it for you if you can't find it in you. I can't see your heart. Only you know what's there. And so when the symptoms begin to show, know that you're... You've got the disease. And then lastly, I say this one for last because this word covet by itself is neither positive or negative. The context determines the meaning of it, and I've only given you a bad context. In about one and three-quarter sermons, you've got just the bad context. But the Bible also uses the word covet in a positive, overwhelmingly helpful context. So the number three cure that takes us right up to the beginning of the point, the cure for covetousness is holiness. Number three is to covet righteousness. To covet is to desire. Take everything that is God's and desire it for you. Now, if you were here last week, you remember I said, it's the neighbor's goods that we covet. We don't covet what God has. That's not what we think about. Now, I'm telling you, to be jealous for what God has. Covet his home in heaven. Covet the rewards of righteousness that he stores there. Covet to be honored for service when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ. How do you do it? You work. You work for him. Plant yourself into the middle of all the good things that you can do for him. And when he calls, be available to answer his call. There are too many in the church that duck when the preacher calls for volunteers, don't duck. Stand up, head and shoulders above everybody else, and make it obvious that you desire to be called upon. The Tenth Commandment says, Thou shalt not covet. But did you know the Bible also says, Thou shalt covet? 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one. But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Not only does he, the Bible tell you to covet... It tells you to covet with all the gusto you possess. Covet earnestly. Covet things that the Holy Spirit gives to his church as gifts. 
Paul said the most excellent gift to covet is found in chapter 13. I'm not going to read that, but that's always known as the love chapter. The best gift to covet is love. Let me, let me just talk around that for a minute. Let me tell you what all the information that I've given you on Ten Commandments distills to. The Ten Commandments say, love God and love your fellow man. So from, from the top to bottom, one through ten, they're all about love. Every commandment focuses on love. Why? Because love roots out covetousness. Love gets rid of covetousness, which is the root of all evil. 1 John 4.16 says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. God is love. If you love God, God dwells in you. Now, from that love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Have you ever thought, why does Paul say the greatest of those gifts of these three Faith, hope, and love. Why is love the greatest one? We just read it in 1 John 4, 16. God is love. And God is the greatest, isn't he? And that's what makes love the greatest gift. Covetousness and God are incompatible. If you are covetous, you are incompatible with God. The holy God has nothing to do with anything but holiness. Now, I want to tell you this as we close out our exposition of the Ten Commandments. But this is not an ethereal principle. The old hippies of Haight-Ashbury took a puff of weed and they said, it's love, man. It's all about love. What does that mean? That's as airheaded as the doper. What does that mean? Well, get ready for this, folks, that love is so concrete that we have been waiting in it. We've let it set and harden around our feet. We've done it in 39 sermons that the cure for all that ails a Christian, the cure for the root cause of covetousness, the cure that shows that you have satisfaction in Christ is this. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Imagine that. Could you imagine that this is what we would get? The love of God is perfected by obedience. These ten words, to ten commandments, ten statements of obedience, define what it means to know God. If you know him, your faith leads to obedience. And now the final word. Thomas Watson, the great expositor of the commandments, was a 17th century Puritan living in England. He, was, he, was, he gained just great popularity as being one of the outstanding Puritan divines that loved the Word of God immensely. But 17th century England was not an easy place to live. In that time, Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity. And it said that all Christian ministers must conform to a standard of liturgy set by Parliament and by the King. And Watson, well at that time it was the Queen actually, and at that time Watson was among those preachers that refused to obey and he had to give up his prestigious pulpit. He esteemed the reproach of Christ more than the pleasures of Egypt, so to speak. He had more respect for the recompense of reward than 
he did for the pleasures of sin for a season. So Watson was forced out of a very, very prominent church, a prominent pulpit. Now what was Watson's assessment of what he lost when he was exiled from his church? Well, in the end of his comments on the Tenth Commandment, this is what he wrote. The way to be content with such things as we have and not to covet another's is to consider the less we have, the less account we shall give at the last day. And I thought that was a very interesting approach to this. Whatever you gain, you must give an account of. And so the more that you get, the more you're responsible for. Now here's the last quote. There is no better antidote against coveting than that which is another's, that which is another's, than being content with that which is our own. There's the cure for coveting. If I love God with all my heart, my soul, and all my strength, if I love my neighbor as myself, I will always be satisfied. If I'm content with God who is mine, then there isn't anything greater than I can desire. I will not covet anything else if I covet God. I will not covet anything else if I covet God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for the Lord Jesus Christ where we find all of our contentment, all satisfaction, and knowing that we are children of yours and, Lord, that we have been promised a home in heaven. Help us to earnestly covet the best things that you have, to earnestly covet who you are, to earnestly covet the gifts that you give, to earnestly covet a home in heaven to earnestly covet the rewards that you've laid up there, to earnestly covet the commendation that we'll receive from the Savior for obedience to your commands. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, you know in the exposition of the Ten Commandments, and there are some here who haven't heard it all, but we've emphasized this so many times, keeping commandments is not the way that we're saved. There was grace that came before the commandments. Keeping them is not the way to be saved, but keeping them is the evidence that we are. God's people obey God's word. Lord, help us to have the faith in you that we should have, to always be obedient, and then we will not covet. Thank you, Lord, for what we've learned today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org